And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm delighted to welcome Dolan Perkins Valdez back to the program today. Dolan is the current chair of the board of the Penn Faulkner Foundation, as well as an associate professor of English at American University in Washington, D.C. But for Book Talk purposes, she's a highly respected writer of fiction. Her debut novel was Winch, followed by Balm, and today we'll be talking about her newest book, Take My Hand, which is published by Berkeley. Dolan, it's been almost seven years since we talked about your second novel, Balm. What led to this longer process for your third novel, Take My Hand? Well, the seven years was part process and part life. I had, right around the time that Balm came out, I had a second child, so I had a little baby. But this process took a little bit longer because I really wanted to get it right. I wanted to do justice to this story. And so I spent time in Montgomery, Alabama, researching, and I spent a lot of time going through my primary sources and really just trying to get the structure of the book right so that I could do justice to what happened. Now, there are parallel narratives in Take My Hand, a more contemporary one set in 2016, beginning here in Memphis with the successful Dr. Sybil Townsend, and the other in Montgomery, Alabama, set at the beginning of her career in medicine as a nurse in 1973. Why did you choose to use that parallel structure set 43 years apart? Well, originally I didn't have the Memphis 2016 part, but I had a narrator who was, you know, what we call in creative writing, a two-headed narrator or a reflective narrator. And so I had an older civil looking back on what happened and reflecting on that. One of my readers read an early draft of the manuscript and said that she really liked every time that older civil emerged and gave a little bit of perspective about what happened. And eventually, in my drafting process, I pulled it out. And one day I woke up and wrote the very first chapter, which remains the first chapter of the book. So there was always a reflective narrator looking back on what happened, because I was really, I was really concerned and obsessed with what it must have felt like to be a nurse at that time and have something like this happen under your watch and how that might devastate your life. And so that older voice was important to me. Now, the story is being told to her adult daughter. Why did you decide to use that as the framing for this instead of just speaking to the reader in general? Well, in my mind, the daughter is sort of the reader, you know. She's telling this story to her daughter so that her daughter knows what happened. And in the same way, I, as the writer, am telling this story to the reader so that readers know what happened back then. Because that was one of my main motivations for writing the book was to share this story. I thought it would be important for her to tell her daughter at the age that she was when this happened. So her daughter has just graduated college and she had just graduated college. And I wanted to symbolically represent why it's important for us to share these historical narratives with our children and grandchildren and just young people in general, particularly young women. I'll have to say, saying 50 years ago is historical really hurts my soul as an old man. (laughs) Well, you know, it's so funny you say that because when I first started writing this book, I didn't think it was historical fiction because, as you know, my first two books were set in the 19th century. And so I thought I was writing a contemporary novel. And then my teenager says to me, you mean way back in the 1900s? (laughs) When she said that, I realized, oh, well, maybe this is historical, at least to her generation. But I began to really 
realized that I needed to do a lot of research that, you know, even though 1973 was a time when many of us were alive, I needed to make sure I got that period right. Maybe because many of us were alive, I needed to get it right because I knew my readers would correct me on my mistakes. Now, is there any coincidence that the story takes place right around the time that you were born? Yes, it is a coincidence because that wasn't my motivation. That was just the year that the court case happened. But I was really drawn to that year because, you know, as you know, that's the year after the Tuskegee syphilis experiment comes to light after a reporter from the AP blows the whistle. It also is the year of the Roe v. Wade decision. It's the year that we begin to hear about the Nixon scandals happening in the White House. And yes, you know, it also happens to be my birth year. So that really drew me to this moment. So in your previous novels, set mainly in the the middle part of the 19th century, I'm sure research was much different than it was for Take My Hand. So in what ways was Take My Hand even more difficult because it was closer? It was difficult because I couldn't make any assumptions. I had to make sure, like when I do my 19th century novels, I work really hard to try to not place a contemporary perspective in a 19th century person who had no access to media, who had very little access to some global things happening. So it was the same in 1973 in the sense that people didn't have cell phones. They didn't have personal computers. There was no cable television. You know, they listened to the radio. There was a lot of radio listening in the book. Some parts of the research for 1973 were actually really fun because I got to think about music. I have a playlist of the music in the book that I'm going to be sharing with readers. Uh, It was also fun to think about the foods that people were eating. It was fun to think about, you know, what cars they were driving. My main character drives a Dodge Colt. So I really had a lot of fun with some of those details. But I think that you know, it's always a stretch the further you go back in history to really place yourself into a character. But 1973 was not easy either. So if you were like Sybil Townsend, is there an era in your life that you would reflect back upon like she's doing in this novel? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I haven't been asked that. I would say I think about the 80s a lot. When I was, you know, in high school in the late 80s, I think about, you know, what was going on in the country, the kinds of shifts that were happening culturally. And of course, the rise of technology in the mid to late 90s really changed things. I had a student recently who's working on a novel set in 1994. And, you know, again, thinking about what makes historical fiction and what isn't. And she said, oh, it's a contemporary novel. And I said, well, 1994, you know, we didn't have iPhones yet. I can't remember the exact year that iPhones began, but I know that was right around the transition to these phones. And so, you know, we really have to think about what life was like before smartphones. It was very different. The main bulk of the story takes place in 1973, and it's when Sybil Townsend begins to work at a clinic as a nurse. What type of clinic is she working at there in Montgomery, Alabama? She's working at a family planning clinic that is funded by the federal government. It's the Montgomery Family Planning Clinic. And it's one of hundreds of clinics that are established across the U.S. to purportedly give women access to reproductive health, to birth control, and things like that. Many of them are placed in black communities. The one in my book is placed in a black community and is meant to be sort of 
government-sponsored health care for women, and it actually existed. It was in a small house on the same street that my book takes place. And, you know, this is Sybil's first job. She's just finished nursing school at Tuskegee. Her father is a doctor. She's very excited about this first job because she wants to make a difference in her community. This clinic serves an African-American clientele, and their supervisor is a white woman named Linda Seeger. What's the dynamic between the nurses who are dealing with the clients and the supervisor, Ms. Seeger? Well, the interesting thing that I try to capture is that in one respect, they're all on the same team, right? And I think that this was the double-edged sword of birth control access for black and poor women. They want women to have these reproductive choices. They want women to have better control over their lives. They want women to be able to come in for, you know, cervical screenings, things like that. And they're on the same page with her in that sense. On the other hand, there was the legacy of the eugenics movement that was still circulating among federal officials and among some people who worked in these clinics. And so in the book, Mrs. Seeger takes that reproductive control a step further by saying to women that they should be sterilized, particularly after they've had a number of children. She's taking it an extra step to coercion, which is is the overreach that happens during this period and which Civil finds herself at the nexus of trying to help on the one hand, but also coercing and being at the nexus of this terrible government push. Looking back, it seems like such a progressive time, especially in light of the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade, even some conservative voices calling for banning birth control nowadays. That seems way ahead of where we are right now. Well, you know, I don't know if it's way ahead. You know, I... I, I Free health care, that's kind <laughs> of where we are. It is. I mean, I think there's still a lot of work to be done in 1973. One of the things that, you know, civil believes that, you know, we've had these great Um, strides in the civil rights movement. We've had the Voting Rights Act. We've had the Civil Rights Act. We've had the second wave of the feminist movement happen in the 1960s. And so it feels like a time of great promise. But at the same time, it is still a time of oppression. And she is struggling with both her hope for the moment, but also her realization that things haven't progressed as, as far as they need to. I don't think of history as linear, in terms of thinking that history progressively gets better or it progressively gets worse. But I do think that there's some connections that can be made between our contemporary moment and that moment. And that is that the desire to control women's bodies is still alive and well. And that desire is going to disproportionately affect women of color, poor women, disabled women, vulnerable women. So I'm not sure that now is any better or worse other than to say it feels sort of like here we are again. Much of the discussion of poverty today looks at urban landscapes, but there is also still rural poverty. But it was especially dire back in the 1960s and 70s compared to that progress that was being made at the time inside cities. Yes. And that was something that I really wanted the reader to feel and 
understand that this is a family, the Williams family, who are Sybil's patients, live in a house without indoor plumbing. They live in a shanty on the back of a white man's property. They don't have a kitchen. They don't have an indoor bathroom. They don't have any of that. And they are fighting really hard to maintain their dignity in the face of this abject poverty. Sybil, you know, takes it upon herself to try to help them. But we know that at that time, many people lived like that. And, you know, I want the contemporary reader, just like Anne, Sybil's daughter, to really revisit that moment with me. But yes, we still have rural poverty. We still have too many children, especially who don't get enough to eat and who live below the poverty line, you know, in a country as wealthy as ours and that has, I don't know, a trillionaire, soon to be trillionaire. It seems to me outrageous that there are still hungry kids. Beyond the apartheid from Jim Crow, there has been a huge loss suffered by the Williams family. It has just devastated everyone in that family. Yes, and that is the loss of the girl's mother, which we know very early in the book. We're not giving any spoilers. But yes, very early in the book, we know that the Williams sisters have lost their mother. And it's really devastated them because she was the sort of anchor of the family. Her husband or her widow were husband is struggling to raise the girls with the help of his mother, who is also in deep grief and has really lost her ability to really nurture the girls. They're not in school when Sybil first meets them. They're just, you know, hanging around that property. And so that loss of the mother in real life, the Ralph sister's mother was alive and well. But in my book, I had her be deceased because I wanted to further emphasize the vulnerability of the Williams sisters. They don't have a mother's protection. And the younger sister, India, has some developmental difficulties. She does. She has a condition that hinders her verbal ability, so she's unable to speak, which is reason for the head nurse at the clinic to really want to sterilize her because she thinks, you know, if this girl has a baby, she won't be able to care for the baby. It's a real assumption about disabled women that's very, very dangerous And her older sister is sort of her protector and looks out for her. But, you know, we see in the book that, you know, an older sister can only protect her so much. Sybil finds herself really bonding with those sisters. I mean, when Sybil first visits them, she forgets that the younger sister even has a disability. So we see at the very beginning of the book that Sybil has a lot to learn about how to view her patients as individuals and as people with stories and narratives. And she has a lot to learn about how to listen to her patients. Because you never name the specific condition that she deals with, so she is not identified by that diagnosis. And later in the book, you make the point to say they are not only defined by this event that happens to them later in the book. That's right. I wanted to make sure that people see them as just kids. I mean, India has a disability, yes, but she also has a personality. You know, she loves dolls and she's got lots of dolls. She loves dogs too. She loves dogs, right? Like she sort of adopts stray dogs and takes care of them. She, you know, loves peanut butter. And, you know, she's just a kid who has the same sort of feelings that any kid has. And I wanted to be very 
clear about who she was as a person, as a character, and not reduce her to her disability. And it was also important to me that I not sort of magically cure her of that disability either, right? She goes to a special school in the book that helps her, but it's really just a school that will really help her to live her life and, you know, develop her motor skills and and live more independently. Um, It was really important to me that we see her in all her beauty with every facet. One of the aspects of care that Sybil is providing them with birth control, and that comes through these shots called Depo Provera, and she's confused on why such young girls are having to get these shots. Yes. You know, at that time, Depo-Provera was it's a, an experimental drug. It hasn't been approved by the FDA. And there have been recent studies at that time that showed that Depo-Provera caused cancer in laboratory animals. And Sybil becomes concerned very early in the book that the girls are being given this shot that is experimental and that we don't really know the long-term ramifications. So to me... You know, that's part of a fear that black patients are often experimented upon, such as in the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, that Sybil has to wrestle with. She also learns very early in the book that the younger sister has not even started her cycle yet and has been put on birth control. So she is shaken by that and is really afraid that something is amiss here and begins to investigate exactly how this clinic is operating. And she begins to do research and try to figure out how this has happened. While Erica and India and her father and their grandmother miss the girl's mother very much in her passing, Sybil didn't quite realize that she missed her mother very much as well. Yes, it was really important to me that I not juxtapose these two families as, you know, one with the poor family with all of these problems and one, the middle-class family that was perfect, right? I wanted to really show that all families are complicated. And Sybil's family, her father is a doctor. Her mother is an artist. Her father is a workaholic and works all the time. And her mother suffers from an undiagnosed mental illness. She is an only child and really craves her mother's love. But her mother is only able to give her so much So this is one of the things she shares with the girls, that this desire for a mother's love. Although Sybil, from the very beginning, knows that she has no intention of being a mother herself. That is not something that she's ever wanted. And it's a difficult position to hold in the Deep South at that time that, you know, you're a woman who wants a career and doesn't want the traditional domestic narrative. Probably it's still a difficult position to hold for women anywhere who don't want to be mothers. And Sybil had to make a very tough decision with an unplanned pregnancy earlier in the book that we didn't get to see as it happened. She does. And I will tell you, Stephen, that was a difficult decision for me to include that in the book. But when I woke up one morning, I knew that that was the case, that one of the reasons she goes to work at that clinic in the first place, one of the reasons she feels so passionate about helping women is that she has had this unplanned pregnancy, and she wants to give other women the opportunity to not have that happen so that they are not in the difficult position that she was in. And so that's why she really wants them to have contraceptive access. It was 
frightening for me to include because I've never written about that in any of my books. And I know that it is a touchy subject, uh, for lack of a better phrase. But I also knew that it was true. Of course, I had no idea that we'd be having this conversation in the context of what's happening now because, you know, I started this book seven years ago. But I did know for sure that when I woke up that morning and had this realization that she'd had this experience, I knew that it was true for her as a character. When six days ago the news leaks that the Supreme Court has has these draft decisions made on that could possibly overturn Roe versus Wade. How did that make you think about the book more so than your own personal life? Well, I've just been thinking, you know, and, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., and we've been all talking about this for some months now. So I wasn't surprised when that opinion was leaked. But I have just been thinking that I hope that people will use this narrative as a way of thinking about who's going to be most affected by this decision, and also as a way of understanding that when we talk about reproductive rights, we are talking about so much more than just terminating a pregnancy. There's so much more to that discussion there's this issue, which is an issue of forced sterilization, which is connected to those kinds of impulses. We're talking about really women's health, women who may go through unsafe procedures in the future that could really jeopardize their health. You know, there's so many things. We're talking about also just the right to raise a child in a safe and healthy environment. We're talking about children and what will we do for these children who are going to be brought into the world? So I think, I hope that what this book will do is it will remind us that this conversation is multifaceted. Because I think in the coming months, our country is going to have some very, very painful discussions. And so my hope for this book is that it will just add another layer to those discussions. I was surprised to learn recently that the number one cause of death of pregnant women in America is murder. Yes. And I'll tell you, for black women, our maternal mortality rates, uh, which is a sort of another facet of pregnant women and the dangers that we we face, are higher, disproportionately higher than other populations. Our infant mortality rates are higher. There are a lot of health risks that black women and, and impoverished women and women of color face if we're not very careful and don't pay careful attention to women's health. So that's why I say this is a women's health issue. But yes, even this idea of pregnant women being murdered is something that we need to talk about. All of this needs to be part of that discussion. Now, Sybil becomes very involved with the Williams family. And this unfortunately seems like a prime way to fall into the trap of burnout or compassion fatigue. Yes, she is young. And I know some readers will read her and think she's naive, but she is naive. I mean, she's 22, 23 years old. I think about it. I mean, I teach at American University and my students are very eager to change the world and they're smart and they have a lot of passion and energy. But, you know, many of them still have a lot of lessons to learn and they can only do that by going forth in the world and trying to do what it is they want to do. And this is what Civil faces. She has a lot of passion. She has a lot of energy. She's smart, but she has a lot to learn. And one of the foremost lessons she has to learn is that she doesn't have all the answers. 
you know, there's this one line. She said, I walked right up into that house with my medicine bag, five foot, five inches of know-it-all. And that really sums it up when she is first hired at the clinic. And so she wants desperately to help this family. And I guess you could say, yes, eventually she gets compassion fatigue because she's trying so hard. And the family pushes back often, you know. Uh, I think at one point, Mace, the father says to her, you know, you ain't Jesus. You know, why are you doing all this? And so, you know, sometimes people don't necessarily want all the things we think they need. So we have to listen. In this, she works very hard to get them access to some brand new public housing in Montgomery. And it seems so hopeful. Then we know how so often public housing in the 70s turned out. Yes. I mean, I think about that sometimes, how everyone was hopeful about public housing. You know, it was new. It was clean. It was subsidized. So you could afford to live there, you know, and when they first built them, you know, they had playgrounds. But we know that eventually this was really problematic public housing in so many ways. So but at that time, she's feeling very hopeful. It gets them out. They get a bathroom and a kitchen and and Mrs. Williams can cook in her kitchen. She's so excited about that kitchen. They get, you know, a dining room table, you know, with a tablecloth. They didn't have that in that shanty. So I wanted to go back to that moment of hopefulness. And public housing helped both in urban areas and in rural areas. At that time, it was considered to be a great solution. So you mentioned their name earlier. That's uh, Minnie Lee and Mary Alice Ralph, whose circumstance helped inspire this book. And you mentioned that their mother was still alive. In what other ways does their story differ from Erica and India's? Oh, another good question. Well, I took a lot of liberties, and that's why I say this book was inspired by the true story, not based on the true story, because I did take a lot of liberties. And so one of them was my characters, Indy and Erica, are younger. They're 11 and 13 in real life. Minnie Lee and Mary Alice were 12 and 14. I wanted to make them slightly younger so that I could emphasize that they were children. I mean, even at 12 and 14, you're still a child, but I really wanted to further emphasize that. In real life, I don't know what the younger sister's disability actually was. I couldn't find actual any kind of diagnosis or or record of that. So I used my imagination to give India her own disability. Also, in real life, there was an older sister, Katie Ralph. So there were three girls. And, you know, when the nurses came, they tried to sterilize Katie, but she locked herself in a bedroom and and refused to go. So in my book, there are only the two sisters, but there was an older sister in real life. So I tried to create my own family and to give them, the Williams family, their own dynamics I don't know if there was a grandmother in the real family. There probably was, but I don't know anything about her. I wanted them to have their grandmother there in the house. So I made a few changes just to make my story work. And I'll have to say it's one of the most sympathetic portrayals of Ted Kennedy I've seen in fiction. Well, I did hear from the lawyer who argued the case that the family did go to D.C. and they testified before the Senate subcommittee that was led by Ted Kennedy And he did share the story that Kennedy did not want the girls testifying before the subcommittee because he thought that would be exploitative. So they met in his office the day before the hearing, and he remembered how kind and gentle the senator was with the sisters and so professional that the family really opened up. And he said that the sisters 
really opened up to the senator because he was just so kind with them. And that story struck me and I immediately knew I wanted to put that in the book, them going to D.C., you know, going to Capitol Hill, meeting with the senator who they have no idea. I mean, the civil, my nurse knows that he's the brother of the former president, but the girls in the, in the, in the Williams family in the book don't really know who he is. But they go in and they talk to him. And, you know, I wanted to include that. I spent a lot of time, probably, I don't know, wasted time trying to get the office right because I wanted to make sure that it looked like Ted Kennedy's office looked. But that's just another rabbit hole we historical writers go down. (laughs) (laughs) It hardly seems fair to ask you this. So you just spent probably five and a half years with Take My Hand. But do you have an idea, a plot for your next book? I don't. I have some pages that are sort of a scattered mess. I will say that it is another historical narrative. It's set in the hills of North Carolina, but I can't really say what it's about yet until I work on it a little bit more. Well, hopefully we can see you in sooner than seven years or so. I hope so, too. I'm trying to write faster. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dolan, I want to thank you so much again for stopping by on Book Talk. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for inviting me. Dolan Perkins Valdez is the author of Take My Hand, which is published by Berkeley. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.